We're continuing our sermon series this morning in 1 John. It's the New Testament letter written by the disciple or the Apostle John. Uh, as we're looking at uh, what he has to say to the church. Well, one of the things we're looking at today is the question of what characterizes a Christian. So if you were to ask someone on the street what characterizes a Christian, what might they say? What might they say Christians are like, the Christians they have known? And I think, for better or worse, one of the most common answers is probably, well, Christians are nice. They're nice. I happen to think nice is a four-letter word, but we'll get to that in a minute. That Christians are nice, and yet you know what's really interesting about Christians being nice? Is if you look in the Bible, the word nice is not in there. Nowhere does Jesus say, and be nice to other people. Okay, when you go to school, just be nice. All right, please be nice. We need to be nicer. To nice is not in the Bible. That's a fun game to play if you're ever like, I wonder if that word's in the Bible. You just do a quick search. Like, nice is not in there. So if nice is not what characterizes a Christian, then what does? What characterizes the life of a Christian? Well, that's what our passage speaks to today. And so we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to be in verses 3 through 14 to see what characterizes a Christian. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 John. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your word that you speak to us. We give thanks for your commandments. We give thanks that we can know you. And Father, we pray that you would please help us to hear your word today. Use me in spite of my weakness. Speak through me with your word and your spirit, and that we would have ears to hear 
and hearts ready to be changed that we would obey you and love you for you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. So when we're thinking about what characterizes a Christian, it seems that John is saying that it's obedience to God's commands, especially the command to love one another. So obeying his commands especially loving one another. And so John is doing this. He's looking at this general principle first of obedience before moving to a specific issue of loving one another. And then he ends the passage with a word of encouragement to uplift his readers. So he starts in verse 3 with this general principle that kind of summarizes the whole section here. Here's what he writes. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So if you want to know whether or not someone has a relationship with God, look at whether or not that person obeys God's commandments. He's saying it's a way to figure out if someone knows God or not. This isn't knowing something about God, like in Trivial Pursuit, knowing the right answer, but it's knowing God and having a personal relationship with him. You see, John was directing these words at a group of people who had broken away from these churches that he's writing to. This breakaway group claimed that they could know God and have fellowship with him despite the fact that they were not obeying his commandments. We see that in verse 4. He's showing his readers what it is they're teaching. John writes, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. See, Christians cannot know God while not obeying his commandments. Our obedience shows that we have a relationship with him. Now, this week's sermon passage and last week's have a lot in common. In each case, John is pointing out a really obvious error of his opponents. Last week, we looked at the fact that they said, we have no sin. And this week, we're looking at the fact that, hey, we can know God, but we don't need to obey his commandments. To us, we're like, who are these dumb people? Who are these dumb people who broke away and said, we have no sin and we don't really need to obey God's commands? And so we can look at these and go, man, what was the problem with these people back then? But we can't just go past these things that quickly. Because these erroneous attitudes can pop up in more subtle ways. And we saw that last week. And so we're going to see it again here that there are subtle ways that we can veer into the error of thinking we don't need to obey God's commands. One subtle way we may not obey God's commands is by holding a fire insurance view of salvation. A fire insurance view. See, we see the free gift of salvation in Jesus as a get-out-of-hell free card. And so we take our get-out-of-hell free card... And we lock it up in the safe deposit box of our soul, and we go about our merry lives until one day when we die, and we're like, oh yeah, I need to get out of hell free card. And we redeem it for eternal life in heaven with God. And so we claim to know God because, well, we've got that card, and we know that he needs, we need Jesus to save us from our sins, but that's not really knowing God. That's using God for our own benefit. Like he's a genie that we rub on the lamp and like, hey, we need salvation now. All right, please go back in the lamp. We don't need you now. The God of the Bible is no such God. He is not a God who is here only for our benefit. And so in the same way, true salvation does not sit idle in some safe deposit box until our death. 
True salvation bears the good fruit of obedience in our lives until we die. So salvation is not some fire insurance that we have to keep us out of hell. Salvation sprouts new life in us. That's one subtle way we can think maybe we don't need to obey God's commands. A second subtle way we may think we don't need to obey God's commands is by outsourcing holiness. See, all of us, myself included, know many Christians who are holier and more obedient than we are. And we may see ourselves as C-plus Christians, which, you know what? C-plus is passing. That's fine, right? So we think that, you know, God's commands are kind of meant for the other people, the people who really want the A-plus, who want the 100% on the test, people like missionaries in Africa or in China, People like Sunday school teachers for middle school kids, you know, people who really want that extra effort, people who go on the street and door to door and say, I'd like to tell you about Jesus today. Those people are the ones who really obey God completely, and we're fine letting them obey God. And so we outsource holiness and obedience. Now, it is true that God doesn't call all of us to go overseas in missions, and he certainly does not call all of us to teach middle school Sunday school. Praise the Lord. But he does call all of us to be faithful to all of his commands wherever he has called us in life, whether it's in the workplace, at school, in the home, with family, friends, and in the church. He calls all of us in our own unique way to obey all of his commands, that we can't outsource holiness. That's a second way we can think we don't need to obey God's commands. A third subtle way we may not obey God's commands is we define obedience apart from the Bible. In Scripture, God defines what obedience is with his commands, but we prefer to make our own systems of obedience. They overlap with Scripture, and yet they vary just a little bit. And so when we think about obedience, we think about things like our daily quiet time. Or our involvement at church. Or the fact that we give money to church. Or we bring our Bible to church and it's got a neat Bible cover. I don't have one of those, but some people do. Or maybe it's putting Bible verses on our Facebook page. And all of these things are ways in which we define obedience to God. And yet God in his commands says obedience is this. Honor your father and your mother. Forgive one another as you have been forgiven. Go, make disciples of all nations. Rejoice in the Lord always. Care for the poor, the widows, and the orphans among you. John Calvin wrote that men always delight in contriving some way of acquiring righteousness apart from the word of God. That we like to find systems that make us feel like we're obeying God because we know the commands of God are so high. And so we need our obedience to be shaped by the commandments of Scripture rather than the cultural habits of Christians today. So in these and other subtle ways, we can make obedience less necessary to be in a a relationship with God. And yet we can look at this and say, but why is obedience so important? We're not saved by what we do, so why do we really need to obey and put such a strong emphasis on obedience? Well, we see that in verse 5. Here's what John writes. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. 
Now, we hear obedience and we hear the word perfected or completed in some versions, and we start to get a little queasy. And we start thinking, wait, Jesus wants me to be perfect? I can't be perfect. Is John here saying that he expects perfect obedience? But that's pulling this verse out of context. Last week, he showed us that all of us are sinners. And if we say we have no sin, we're liars. So clearly, we're not all perfect. So what John is saying here is that our love for God is perfected or completed by obeying his commands. The way we express our love, the way we perfect and complete and work out our love for God is through obeying his commands. So he's not expecting perfection. He's expecting that if we have love for God, the way we show that love is by obeying his commands. So Christians should not be characterized by disobedience, but by obedience. And that's this general principle he's pointing us to, obeying God's commands. But in verse 7, John starts looking specifically at the issue he was addressing, the command to love one another. Now, John, in verses 7 and 8, really seems to contradict himself. He writes, I am writing you no new commandment. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you. And you look at these verses and you're like, well, John's having a senior moment, you know. After all, he was very old. You know, so maybe he just is having a senior moment here. But that does not seem to be the case. John is actually consistent here. See, the commandment to love one another was quite old. Jesus gave that command at the beginning of his ministry. That Jesus commanded his disciples to love one another and said the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. There was nothing new that John was telling them about loving one another. It was quite old. John's writing this 50 or 60 years after Jesus' ministry. And yet this old commandment is new. That's what Jesus even said when he gave it. In the Gospel of John chapter 13, we read, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, this call to love one another was a new and revolutionary part of the Christian message. See, other religions were about keeping separate from evil things. You know, we can think of sheltering people, that you, you need to be good and stay away from what is bad. Other religious systems were about creating hierarchies, and you tried to ascend the levels of being holier and holier. You can think of, you know ranking up in different levels of the military or in video games or whatever, but it was a system of leveling. Other people thought religion was a private devotion to God. People like Buddha and other things where they would sit and just have this private communion with God. And yet Jesus was saying something new, that religion is about loving one another. Not separating, not classifying Not withdrawing, but loving one another. That should be our primary attitude that characterizes us as Christians, is love for one another. And so it seems in verses 7 through 11 that John's dealing with this breakaway group and that they were not loving one another. And so if that was a fundamental commandment of Jesus, then it should characterize his followers. And so when they weren't loving Christian brothers and sisters, he's saying, you guys aren't doing it right. You guys don't know God because you are not obeying the commandments of God. You guys are still in darkness. 
Now, again, this is where the, the deceptive simplicity of 1 John can catch us. Because so far in 1 John, he has written some really deep things like, we are all sinners, we should obey God's commands, and we should love one another. And you look at this and you're like, well, is this just the remedial class? Those seem like really obvious things that we're sinners who should obey God and love one another. And yet, though those commands are incredibly simple, there is such depth to them. There is such depth that we may look past them not realizing that there's more to those commands. See, we often think of loving one another in the most basic terms. That loving one another is simply being friendly or being nice. That instead of being rude and grouchy and judgmental towards other people, we're polite, kind, and considerate, like we work at Chick-fil-A or something. And so we love one another in our basic interactions with other people. And Christians, and even many non-Christians, are pretty good at just being nice at just being kind to other people and not instantly hating and hurting everyone they meet. But love for one another goes beyond that. See, there are times when people are in need. There are times when people in the church are in need and going through a difficult time, and we need to love them. Maybe they're sick or in the hospital. Maybe they're grieving the loss of a loved one. Maybe they were laid off at work, going through financial difficulty. Maybe they're anxious about their children or anxious about their aging parents. See, as Christians, we need to see that they are in need and help them. We help them by comforting them, praying for them, giving to them, surrounding them with Christian love. And for the most part, churches are really good at loving one another like this. The people of Bethel, you guys are great at doing this. Then when people are in need, in crisis, and need help, we help. We serve. We do well at loving one another in that way. And yet, love for one another goes even beyond that. Because there are times, not when people are hurting, but when people hurt And they hurt others. When people sin and sin against others and when they wrong us. And even in those instances, we are called to love one another. See, our Old Testament reading from 1 Samuel 24 is a fun story, and yet it's about love. David's love for Saul. David had done nothing wrong. And yet Saul and his army relentlessly pursued him to kill him. David had been anointed the new king. He was going to be the new king once Saul was gone. Saul didn't want that, so Saul wanted to get rid of David. And yet David, when given the opportunity to get rid of Saul in the simplest way possible, did not. He did not return evil for evil. He saw Saul as a fellow human being made in the image of God, a fellow anointed of the Lord, and he would not kill him. It's the kind of love that Christians and churches can struggle to give, even though it's the same love we've been shown in Jesus. It's the hardest kind of love. And yet it is the love that shows most clearly that we have been changed by the love of Jesus. 
that love shines brightly in a dark world. It's a kind of love that does not ignore sin or excuse sin because it's awkward to talk about and it might result in conflict. It's the kind of love that says, I am here for you, sinner to sinner. I know that life is messy because I've messed up my life with sin. But Jesus and his church can handle messy. We can handle sin because we have a God who forgives sin and pours out his spirit on us so that we might not sin and obey his commands. That is hard love. And yet it's the kind of love we are given in Jesus. The kind of love we are called to. It's so hard, in fact, that John realizes how difficult it is and he starts to encourage and build back up the Christians worrying that maybe they think we're not doing it well enough. See, John follows up in verses 12 through 14 with a series of encouraging statements. In verse 3, he had given a hypothetical. This is how you will know that you know God if you obey my commandments. But John wants to make the hypothetical a reality, and so we see it in verses 12 through 14. He gives six encouraging statements, and they're addressed to three different groups, but the emphasis does not seem to be on distinguishing who the groups are as much as it is including everyone in the groups. Now, you will notice that these are male terms, and yet they certainly include women because the commands in verses 9 through 11 were love your brother. That doesn't mean you get to punch your sister. See, loving your brother includes loving your sister, and so he's saying everyone in the whole church hear this encouragement. From the youngest to the oldest to the in-between, hear it. And he sums it up at the end of verse 13 where he says this, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. John takes what was hypothetical in verse 3 and makes it reality in verse 13. He says, I know you know God. I know you know that your sins are forgiven in Jesus that they know Jesus who has preached from the beginning, that you have overcome the lies and darkness of the evil one, that you are holding fast to the truth. I know you know. And John is having his readers return to their foundation together. He wants them to reflect on the fact that all of them, everyone in the church, should know these things. That all Christians should know their sins are forgiven in Jesus. They should know that we have overcome evil through his victory. They should know that we are strong because of God's word. And he's encouraging them to hold on to these shared foundational truths so that they can love one another. Because love for one another starts when we see one another as God sees us. Do we see the other people in the church As God sees them. Do we look around at people in the church and think there is someone created in God's image? Someone whom God loves. Most powerfully, there is someone whom Jesus died for. There is someone whom Jesus poured out the same Holy Spirit into. The same spirit that is in me is in them. And we are united in that spirit. Is that how we see one another? He's wanting them to come back to what they share that is true. And they need those shared truths because love is hard. Love is incredibly difficult. 
One of the things that Abby and the women's Bible study said that they learned, they went through 1 John last year, was that we tend to think about love as a Hallmark card, a mushy feeling that we feel. That's what we think of as love. And in that sense, love becomes something that we enjoy, something we get pleasure out of, whether it's cute puppies or a delicious meal or our children, our family, a vacation. It's things that make us feel good are things that we love. That's not the love John's talking about. John is talking about a love that is exemplified in Jesus, a sacrificial love, an inconvenient love, a hard love. That love is not about what we get out of it, but what we put into love. And if we don't know love like that, we can't love like that. See, the only way Christians can love sacrificially is to have been loved sacrificially by Jesus. It's not an abstract concept or a mushy feeling to us. It is reality. It is fact. It is something we point to on the cross that God didn't say, whoa, those are some great-looking people down there who are doing pretty good. I want to love them. They make me feel good. He said, I know I see them in their weakness and sin, and yet I love them in spite of it. And I will send my son to live and die for them. I will love them even though they are unlovely. And so really, it's no wonder that John's opponents, this breakaway group, weren't loving one another. Because they had not known the love of Jesus Christ. They didn't really know what the gospel was. They were in darkness when it came to this sacrificial love. But as John writes in verse 8, the darkness is already passing away and the true light is shining not only in Jesus, but in you. That the truth of the love we have in Jesus shines into us because we have been saved by Jesus Christ. And it can shine out of us because we have experienced that amazing, sacrificial, inconvenient love. And we can love others in the same way, knowing the security of the love we have from God. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are called to love one another, to obey God's commands, knowing the way that we have been loved. And so today, as we celebrate around the communion table, we celebrate this love that we share, that the love of Jesus is demonstrated in the breaking of the bread and the pouring of the cup. That is the act of love that unites us. It is the act of love that should characterize us as his people. May God fill us with his spirit to love in this way. Amen. Oh Lord, we thank you for the love you have given us. And we pray, oh God, that in spite of our weakness, our unloveliness and our sin, that you would help us to love one another as you have so dearly loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.